the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, my friends. To the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're so glad you're with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Our engineer, he goes by one name, Gabe. And when you go by one name, boy, I'll tell you, you're you're big, you're hot. Um, And Andrew Herdliska, he uses two names. So he's uh, he's our producer. He gets it all done for us. Uh, Michael Foster joins us. Uh, pastor of East River Church in Batavia, just outside of Cincinnati. <clears throat> He's the co-host of It's Good to Be a Man podcast. His book is out, It's Good to Be a Man, a handbook for godly masculinity. Michael, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. They are. I'm glad to be on. Thank you. Uh, what's the background of this book? How did it come about? So it came about because I was a youth pastor for many, many years. Um, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of the kids that grew up in my youth group got older, as you do. And we're trying to get married, and we're having all sorts of different problems, and we're asking for relationship advice, dating advice, uh, you know, even marriage advice if they did manage to get married. And a lot of the problems they were describing to me uh, sounded different than what I experienced. I was born in 1980, so I grew up kind of uh, between analog and digital. I experienced a little bit of both. And I would give them, you know, my best counsel, and they would just tell me that's that, that's not how things work nowadays. That's not how you meet people. Naturally, I, I kind of thought these were just guys who were making excuses for not performing and not getting it done and whatever. But slowly but surely, I realized that the Internet, uh, online dating, um, uh, things like pornography, things like video games, social media, all that stuff have really caused some significant changes in our culture, uh, many for the worse. And had changed the way that men and women relate to one another. And so I kind of set out uh, to understand how I could give these guys biblical, uh, biblically-based counsel that actually interacts with the, the problems they were facing. And so these guys were listening to men like Jordan Peterson. Uh, they were listening to dating coaches on YouTube and Twitter and interacting on, like, Reddit and all these things. And these, none of these guys are truly Christian, you know, these, these men they were listening to. And I thought, man, that's dangerous. You know, I, not that you can't learn wisdom from non-believers. Without a doubt, you can. Paul even quotes uh, non, non-believing uh, philosophers. But there are consequences that, that come with it. So I wanted to enter into that space, learn what I could, see what they were saying that the church wasn't, and give some sort of accounting that could actually help men. So that's where it came from. Uh, Michael, uh, your first chapter is called The War Between Patriarchies. <laughs> Uh, what, yeah. what, what's that about? What's that mean? 
Well, so the word patriarchy just means father rule, and you you can't smash the patriarchy because it's part of God's design. Namely, God uh, rules all, and God is the Father, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But um, God God rules all everything, and then He creates Adam, and Adam is the the first man from which all of us descend. And so, patriarchy is built into the cosmos, to the structure of creation. It's unavoidable. And you'll hear people talking about smashing it, but just like you can't smash gravity, can't smash patriarchy. But uh, it doesn't mean that every form of father rule is actually godly. Matter of fact, Satan, Scripture says he is a father, right? Your father, the devil, or the father of lies. Uh, so there is a, a evil form of patriarchy in the world, which is taking God's good design and twisting it by sins, uh, by sin for purposes other than which it was, you know, made for. And so this is showing that there is a, a battle between godly patriarchy and ungodly patriarchy throughout all of history. Um, and the, one of the big examples we give is Pharaoh when he's seeking, when he's afraid of the Israelites um, multiplying too quick in Exodus, uh, he tries to use the women, the midwives, to kill the firstborn sons of Israel. Not the firstborn daughters, not that daughters don't matter, just the firstborn sons are going to be the leaders of their household and the leaders of that nation. And he knows if he can destroy them, he can maintain power. And that's an example of the evil patriarchy actually warring against other future patriarchs. And we see that spiritually in our world, where we pacify men by giving them pornography or video games, or we harness them uh, by uh, redirecting their kind of masculine ambitions towards worthless things. Uh, And so that's, that's the war between the patriarchies. Let's go to topic two. Masculinity is very good, you write. Tell us more, Michael. Yeah. So in, in Genesis, God says um, that he, or we're, we find out that God made man, male and female, he made them. So binary sexuality is part of God's design. At the very end of Genesis 1, God, after describing how he made sexuality, says it was very good. And so femininity or femaleness is good. You hear that everywhere. And we don't want to take away from that. That's part of God's design. But you're not hearing that it's good to be a man. That actual maleness, which was made by God, is good. Just like apples are good and blue skies are good. Any part of God's design is good. It can be twisted or whatever. We find people in our culture these days actually hating masculinity. They call it toxic. They say there's something bad about what they call traditional masculinity, and when you look up what traditional masculinity is, it turns out that it's really close to biblical masculinity. So we, what we wanted to argue and show from Scripture is that, that maleness isn't an accident. It's on purpose. It's part of God's good design. And men shouldn't be ashamed of having a sexual desire. They shouldn't be ashamed of having a desire to, uh, to have a kind of a path, a tribe to run with, the brothers. They shouldn't be uh, ashamed of having ambition. All those things can be twisted to evil ends. But when uh, ordered according to God's word, they're good things that produce stability in a society. My guest is Michael Foster. We're talking about his book, It's Good to Be a Man. I want to move uh, to a topic a little bit later in your book. It's called The Church Effeminate. Uh, (laughs) Michael, explain that. What does that mean? Is that good or bad? It's not good. 
also, uh, femininity looks great on women. It's repulsive on men, right? So a feminist not not using femininity as a pejorative. Just like it's it's fine for a cat to meow, but when a dog meows or something, not right. And there's differences between the sexes. And the problem with the church these days, why men won't go there, so in, in particular the Protestant church, is overwhelmingly female, right? 60-plus uh, percent at least in your average Protestant church. And that means there's just men aren't, aren't going to church. And so the question is why? Is it because men don't like religion? Well, that's not true. Islam is primarily male. Orthodox Judaism is primarily male. There's been times throughout history where the Church has been, at the very least, at parity between the sexes. So why now are men checking out of churches more and more? Well, it's because the Church has now oriented itself entirely, almost entirely, to women. So when men come there, they don't feel welcome. They feel like this is a place for women. It's like when I walk into Hobby Lobby, I'm like, I don't think this is for me, you know. I don't have a problem with Hobby Lobby or I don't have a problem with, like, Yankee Candle or something, but that's not exactly a typically masculine space. And so men are checking out of the church, and so in that chapter we try to explain the motives, the history behind that, and why it's not true that you have to check your masculinity at the door when you come into a church. Michael, uh, dive into this topic for us, uh, topic number eight, no father no manhood. Yeah, this is the problem we are facing in our culture right now. If there was a single problem we could identify, it would come down to fatherlessness, and that is that boys are growing up without a father or with a father who is abdicated from his fatherly duty. And masculinity is something that's not just taught. You can't learn it from podcasts or books or radio shows, or uh, courses, you, you learn it from being around other men. It's a baton that's handed down from one man to another. And that's, uh, that's why you, in your, you have worked in sports uh, a large portion of your life. This is why so many men fall in love with their coaches. Their coaches are the closest thing they get to a father that pushes them towards excellence, loves them and supports them, but demands them to go to the edge of himself. And that's how a man grows into masculinity. It's 80% taught, 20% taught. And if you don't have a father, that's going to break down. So what do we do, though, if we're fatherless? Well, thank goodness that God is a father, and he has a heart for orphans, and he has a heart for people um, who don't have a dad. And I grew up in a broken home. And though my dad was around, he, he had a really bad dad, and he wasn't really sure how to raise his son. He did his best. But by being adopted into the family of God and having God as my father, um, the Lord works in me and disciplines me for my, my good. So the gospel is key in an age like ours, especially. It's always key in an age where you have men that don't know how to be a man because they don't have fathers. God's father starts to correct what went wrong. Michael Foster <clears throat> joins us talking about his book, It's Good to Be a Man. No gravitas, <clears throat> no manhood. Uh, Michael, what does that mean? Gravitas is a old Roman virtue. It means weightiness or seriousness or graveness. Um, and it's a way to say it's a guy that when he comes into the room, he carries weight. 
So think of if you ever meet a police officer or perhaps a military officer who's out of uniform, and just by the way he carries himself, you, you can feel he has authority. He's got gravitas when he walks into the room. And men need to get gravitas. That's what they lack. Men are full, they're kind of light. Everything is a joke. They don't have um, any weight to them. And we like to use the, the analogy of, of gravitational force and planets. Like, how does a man lead a woman? Well, he leads a woman much like the Earth leads the moon. It's that the Earth has this greater mass, this weight this, that you gain through piety and virtue by uh, seeking the Lord and developing discipline. Um, you, you have like this mass, you've got this pull to you, and it pulls other people into your leadership. And as, as a father, I have to be out in front of my kids, and I have to uh, be that example to them. I have to have that gravitas. And so when we tell men, you want to enter into masculinity, you want to grow as a man, grow in gravitas. And you do that by throwing yourself into life. You have to not be risk-adverse. You've got to go out there and try, and, and God honors that. And through that, God grows you. And we see that idea in pursuing holiness laid out all through the New Testament. Now, uh, Michael, uh, talk to us about gravitas through duty. Explain that. Yeah, it's kind of an extension of what I was just talking about, is that you can't just sit around and read books and think thoughts. Not that there isn't a value in studying and, and reading and meditation. Of course, there is. You've got to start to apply these things in your life. I mean, much you grow in so much wisdom by changing your oil, fixing a leaky faucet, um, by working, starting a business, or, or working on a big project at work, or just putting yourself out there, but fulfilling your masculine duties, which is to guard, protect, and build. Uh, by, by fulfilling those duties, God grows you. It's, it's the means by which maturation, uh, maturing as a Christian man, happens. And so when you say, I don't have this, well, you're not going to get it just by, again, even reading my book. Uh, you're going to get it by, by doing the things that God calls you to do, by developing a spiritual uh, life, by reading His Word and praying, by attending a church faithfully, um, by fulfilling all the other duties, the one another throughout Scripture. Uh, that's how you'll start to grow in that. That's where it comes from. My guest is Michael Foster. We're talking about his book, It's Good to Be a Man, a handbook for godly masculinity. And when we come back... Uh, we've got some more topics to cover. For example, uh, how to bear the weight, manhood through mission, the necessity of fraternity, the excellence of marriage. Stay with us. We're going to have a good second session here with Michael Foster. In the meantime, uh, my latest book is out. It's, uh, it's out there now. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we go back into the Revolutionary War period, and we study 25 different leaders, some of them very famous, some men, some women, some minorities. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it and get some good leadership principles uh, from uh, the men and women who, who, who started our country up. So uh, when you go up to order Michael Foster's book, It's Good to Be a Man, uh, get a copy of Revolutionary Leadership as well. More with Michael Foster right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. 
in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I'm Pat Williams, and my guest is Michael Foster from East River Church in Batavia, just outside of Cincinnati. And Michael, as advertised, your next topic is simply called How to Bear the Weight. Uh, Explain that to us. So men are known primarily by what they do. So if you can think of like, if a guy says he's got a new girlfriend, one of the first things guys are going to ask is what does she look like? If a girl says she has a new boyfriend, one of the first things they're going to ask is what does he do, right? Men are really known by their vocation in a way that's a little, at least historically speaking, is a little different than women. And that feels like burden. Men feel this burden to perform, uh, to get out there and, and be excellent in all these things. And that can be an unbearable weight to a lot of people. And they can feel like, since they, if they're coming from a fatherless family or a broken family or they, they became a Christian later in life, they're being discipled, they can feel like they can never catch up. But you can bear the weight, one, through the gospel, knowing that you have approval in uh, the eyes of the Father through the blood of the Son, and also just by, instead of making excuses, like own, own what was your mistakes, right? Maybe you are a victim. Maybe your dad didn't teach you what you need, needed to know. But you can't do anything about that. So step one really here is in bearing the weight is just saying this is my responsibility to deal with the cards I've been dealt and and God loves me and God will bring it through. So you start to take responsibility for that and this uh, step-by-step incrementally, you know, as you grow, uh, God blesses it and you're able to get stronger. It's like no one comes in and benches 300 pounds right away. They, they start low, and they work their way up there. And, and so you can bear the weight because God loves you. Christ bore the ultimate weight for you. And then also, if you just start taking responsibility incrementally, you'll grow as a man. How about this topic uh, that you dive into, Michael? A manhood through mission. Uh, explain that one. Sure. So men nowadays, when you, you talk to them, they're, they really don't know where, where they're going to go, what, what they should be doing. They seem kind of aimless. Uh, but you will find that in younger men, probably 30s and down, that there's a love for video games. You know, you spend a lot of time on video games. And I don't think rightly ordered, there's nothing wrong with recreating through video games. But one thing that uh, men find attractive about video games is it has a clear mission, a clear goal, something they're supposed to accomplish and do something larger than themselves. And God gave a mission to Adam. He said, you need to rule and reign and subdue this earth and and be fruitful and multiply. Fill it. Fill it with the people that worship God, with image bearers uh, throughout the whole world. So he's given this mission, and we all participate in that general mission, in specific ways. God's given us different gifts, different temperaments and personalities and abilities. You're born in a certain time in history, and men need to develop a mission for their life, which is that kind of personal application based on what you have uh, of that general principle that's called the creation mandate, right? And so as you develop that mission in life, like part of my mission is I, I work in business development, and I'm a pastor. And that's how I use my gifts of communication and strategy and whatever to uh, 
to actually help brothers, you know, help my neighbors, but also provide for a household and be able to raise up children. And so in that chapter, we lay out, here's how, here's some practical ways to start developing a mission uh, so you can get some momentum in your life. Now, uh, Michael, let's move to uh, the topic of the necessity of fraternity. Uh, Explain that. Expand on that. Yeah. So there's a great story in that chapter where we talk about this uh, guy who was in Afghanistan, and he came home, and he found himself dreaming about being back in the trenches with uh, all his brothers. Even though that they didn't have you know, running water and they had to use the restroom outside and people are trying to kill him, what he loved about it is that he had these other guys that are really close and really focused, so they have to work together to accomplish this specific mission. And those guys held each other accountable. They're a band of brothers. As a matter of fact, you, know, you see this in the story, a band of brothers about Dick Winters and all those guys, that these guys love the fraternity that brings focus and accountability to their life. And God made us to live in community. It's interesting that Solomon, in chapter 1 of Proverbs, one of the first things he warns his royal son, the prince, about is do not cast your lot with bloodthirsty men. These bloodthirsty men say, hey, let's go jump this guy, and we'll take the person, and we'll split it. And it's because he knows that we want a pack to run with, right? a group of men to have. And we want to say that that's good. But you need other guys to help keep you accountable, to tell you when you're, you know, you're being lazy or actually give you qualified praise and all that. So that book's all about that it's okay to seek that brotherhood, and it's not good to be isolated from people. Um, actually, it says in Proverbs, uh, isolation is something that leads to destruction. And so you need, a, you need a crew. You need a tribe. And most of us find that uh, in our workplace, but it's especially great when you find it through a local community of God-fearing, manly men. Michael Foster is our guest. Michael, talk to us about your 14th topic, the excellence of marriage. Most books on masculinity lean heavily into marriage. And so that, to us, or me and uh, non tenant my co-author, uh, when we wrote this book, that really stuck out to us. And we didn't want a book about manhood to be about getting a woman, because a man's not defined by his ability to get a woman. That's part of it. But Adam was given a mission in the garden before he was in and then Eve was brought to Adam to help him as a helper. It's literally what it says in Genesis chapter 2, to help him fulfill that mission. So what we want guys to do is develop that mission, develop that drive, that vocation, at least start moving that direction, and then bring a wife into it. Again, that goes back to the idea of kind of a gravitational pull or gravitas. A man needs to develop some weight to himself so he can attract a woman. A woman will go with the bad boy, right, with the guy that's a jerk not because she likes that he's a jerk, but she's attracted to his sense of mission and independence and drive. She wants to be with that guy, with a nice guy, the kind of suck-up or however you want to put it. He builds his life around the woman and puts her at the center. A woman doesn't want to be at the center. She wants to have a mission at the center of her life that's greater than her. And so a man, when he starts uh, doing that, a wife is a great multiplier. It's amazing. So through the act of lovemaking, a man gives very little to a woman, but what he gets back is children, right? 
through uh, if a man brings uh, gives money to his wife uh, and buys a house, she makes it into a home, an atmosphere of of rest and and celebration and all that. And so, a, a godly wife, a Proverbs thirty one wife, is a woman that's a multiplier. She multiplies and expands all the work that the man's doing as his helper, and it's something that worth pursuing, even though she's very rare, like gems or rubies. Michael, uh, what do you want people, uh, men particularly, to take from your book and our discussion? I want them to know that you should not be ashamed of your masculinity. It's a gift from God. God made you a man, and you should submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and live out your masculinity in a way that glorifies God, because as the man goes, so goes the household, and as the household, so goes society. If you're concerned about society, it starts with you taking responsibility for yourself, and through that, God will do a wonderful work in our country. Michael, how are people, how are men responding to your book? What's the feedback? It's been really positive. It sold way more copies than I ever expected, and I get, I, I probably have, you know, 50 to 100 emails um, every day or so. And uh, guys are just, they're hungry. They're hungry for mentorship. They're hungry for fatherhood. And they're looking for practical ways to be, to grow in manhood. And sadly, the church uh, basically tells them not to look at porn and to be a good guy. And yeah, don't look at porn and be a good guy. But when you say man up, you hear that in churches, man up. That's very discouraging to a guy who actually wants to man up, but has no clue how to do it. And I think there's an older generation of men we had the benefit of having uncles and having fathers and growing up in a time that wasn't totally wrecked by uh, egalitarianism. Those guys don't realize that a tsunami has washed away a lot of that cultural knowledge. These guys don't know how to keep eye contact, how to shake hands, how to ask for a job promotion, how to lead or talk to a woman. They're very awkward and they need help and they're sick of being effeminate. And they, want, they want to step up. They're looking for mentors. So I think there's a hunger here. And I'm hoping that the book, uh, I don't, I can only help so many people. I'm hoping the book just helps stir this topic up more and, and pastors will be able to minister to the men and we'll see more podcasts and more books. That Mike, help that. Michael Foster, author of It's Good to Be a Man, has been our guest. We've got more after this. Stay here with us on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Uh, Michael Foster, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, It's Good to Be a Man. Well, we stay with the Michaels because Dr. Michael Lindsay is with us. He's the president of Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. His book is out, Hinge Moments, Making the Most of Life's Transitions. Michael, welcome to Orlando. I hope uh, you're doing well, and uh, a Merry Christmas in advance. How you doing? Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Uh, why the book, Michael? What, what's the background? What happened? I spent 10 years of my life interviewing uh, senior leaders across America and did the largest study ever conducted based on interviews with 550 senior leaders, included people like Presidents Carter and Bush, mm. cabinet secretaries like Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, 
250 CEOs, including uh, 20 of the Fortune 100 CEOs, and the heads of virtually every major nonprofit, including the presidents of Harvard, Stanford, and Princeton. Mm. And what I concluded after talking to all those individuals is that everybody, whether you're the CEO or the person who is working in the mailroom, each of us in the course of our life experience what I call in the book hinge moments, inflection points in our life that change the trajectory for the rest of our days. And those people who are in leadership are folks who have found ways to maximize those hinge moments for the greater good. And so the book is designed to try and help all of us to make the most of the moments that God brings into our life that end up changing us for good. Well, you open your book uh, with this chapter, Approaching the Doors in Our Lives, Considering a Change. What's going on? Well, one of the engineering marvels uh, that goes back centuries is the concept of a hinge of a door. A hinge can keep a door that is open, propped open. It can keep a door that is closed, closed. And it can uh, allow the flexibility of movement so that you can close an open door or open one that has been closed. And so it is in our life. Circumstances happen to us, some of our own choosing, some of which are, are, are thrust upon us, and they become important moments when we have to decide, are we going to go into the next room that God's preparing for us? So sometimes those hinge moments come because we apply to get into grad school and we get into our dream, dream job or dream school, or it might be an opportunity like um, you know, uh, our wife says that we're going to have a baby, and now you're starting a family. Sometimes the hinge moments are difficult moments. We lose a job, a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, but all of them become moments when we can anticipate the movement of God and get ready for what's coming next. Let's move to the second topic. Standing outside, why change hurts your head? Tell us more. Yeah, th- There's a Nobel Prize-winning economist named Daniel Kahneman, and he says that there's uh, two kinds of thinking that we do, system one and system two. And system one is that sort of conscious thought that we do every day when you're trying to remember somebody's name or when you're trying to learn a new language. It's the intentional process of trying to master something. But most of the day, we're relying upon what he calls system two. That's the sort of automatic part of our brain that just instinctively knows how to drive from our house to our our work or um, how to make spaghetti after we've done it a thousand times. It's that system two part of your brain that you rely upon for most of the days. But when you experience a hinge moment, when you move to a new town, when you apply for a new job, a lot of things that you took for granted, you're now having to be intentional about. You're having to think consciously about it. And the reason why change hurts your head is because you used to rely so much on system two, and now you're having to rely upon system one, which is why we have to give ourselves a little bit more grace when we're moving to a new community or we're starting a new, a new chapter. You've got to recognize that there's a lot of stuff that's going on in our body and our brains that's taking a real toll on us. And so um, in the book, I try to offer some practical advice of how you can make the most of those change moments so that you can succeed even when times are tough. Dr. Michael Lindsay is with us. He's in Upland, Indiana, the president of Taylor University. Topic number three for you, Michael, straddling the threshold, the space between spaces. What's that mean? Well, it's interesting. The Latin word for threshold is lemon. It's this idea that you're between spaces. And actually, when you're in the the 
uh, intersection phase of a transition or when you are in that liminal moment of being betwixt and between. So let's say you've decided that you're going to move to a, a new church, but you haven't joined it yet, but you know where you're going. You're sort of in between because you're, you're losing some of your support, some of your existing church network, but you're not yet settled in the new place. And those are hard times. And throughout all of our lives, we go through it. Part of the story of writing this book was my own journey of stepping down from the presidency at Gordon College in Boston, an institution I loved and where I thought I would serve for the rest of my career, and waiting to see where God was going to be calling me next. I had never stepped down from a job without having one already lined up. But that's where I found myself. The Lord had called me to step down from Gordon, but I didn't yet know what was next. And for about five or six months, I would say it's really tough, really hard. So part of what I try to do in the book is to offer some practical uh, daily disciplines, some spiritual practices that we can take that help us to manage those in-between states when you're waiting for, to see what God's going to do next. One thing that my wife and I did is we decided we would take a daily walk where we would pray out loud and meditate on Scripture and try to say, okay, what's the Lord doing in our life today, and how is He shaping where we might be heading next? And um, I called that a daily discernment walk. Sometimes we did it, you know, on the beach in Florida there, um, and it was a beautiful, nice afternoon walk. And sometimes it was in the dead of winter at 10 o'clock at night after we got our kids to bed, but we wanted to do it before we went to bed that night. So those kinds of disciplines are really important when you're in those threshold moments that occur in any change or transition we have in life. And sometimes they can last for a few weeks. Sometimes they can last even for a year or two. But in those moments, I think God really uses them to help shape the angle of our trajectory. So getting it right matters because uh, so much of the rest of your life is going to be based upon that particular season. My guest is Dr. Michael Lindsay, president of Taylor University. Tell us about the welcome mat landing in your new space. What's going on now? Well, eventually, God leads you to a, a new church, a new community, a new job, or a new phase of life. Maybe you've become empty nesters, and now uh, you and your spouse are trying to rediscover one another because you don't have the busyness of having high school kids fill up all of your time. When you move into that new season, that new chapter, that new community, in essence, you're just trying to meet as many people as you can and to try and get your bearings. And so just as we extend a welcome mat uh, when we're receiving guests to be hospitable, so also we have to take advantage of these new seasons, new opportunities to try things out, to do things different. One of the things that I love about working with college students is that when they head off to university, in essence, it's a chance for everybody to press the reset button. If there's character traits or habits that maybe you're not proud of or that you don't think really is who you want to be, you have a chance to sort of say, okay, I'm going to be a different person going forward. And I find that pressing the reset button is a great regular occurrence when you start a new chapter. In essence, giving a chance to sort of let's wipe the slate clean and let's start afresh. And so that's part of the great gift, I have to say, of every moment that comes to us. Average American is going to live 70 to 80 years, and that's going to represent 40 million minutes that you've got over the course of a lifetime. But in reality, there's probably, I don't know, a dozen or two of those individual minutes that actually change your life. The minute you're born, the minute you get married, the minute you land your first job, the minute 
your spouse is laid off or the minute that you experience your first family tragedy. All of these individual minutes end up shaping who you become. And so Hinge Moments is a guide that helps people to make sense of it. And one of the practical bits of advice that I offer in the book is telling the stories of different leaders that I met who were intentional about making the most of those uh, transitions in order to be able to be successful over the long haul. My guest from uh, Upland, Indiana, Dr. Michael Lindsay. We're talking about his book, Hinge Moments. Uh, We've got another segment with Michael. Stay with us now uh, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, I just want to remind you that uh, we're still working hard trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and uh, you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. Uh, tell us your thoughts. Uh, do you want to be part of this? Uh, we're working hard at it, but uh, uh, we need you to be uh, aware and plugged in. All right, more with Michael Lindsay here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Michael Lindsay is our guest, president of Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. We're talking about his book, Hinge Moments, Making the Most of Life's Transitions. Uh, Michael, uh, the next topic is called The Deadbolt, Earning the Key Through Trust. Hmm. Whenever we go through transitions in life, we have to really um, find ways of uh, being a blessing to the people that we work with, the people we go to church with, our neighbors and our friends. And the surest way that you can make a positive difference with the Lord is to be seen as a trustworthy person. So in the book, I talk about how important it is to establish and maintain trust. You know, the, the tough thing is that we are responsible for 100% of our portion of a relationship, whatever it might be. And sometimes uh, there's hurts or wounds or challenges in a relationship that in the end only in God's timing can healing really occur. But the great thing about starting afresh, beginning a new chapter in your life, experiencing a hinge moment, is that you have a, a new opportunity to become more trustworthy and for folks to be able to see you as Uh, somebody that they can put their trust and confidence in. And so the book really tries to tell the story of those individuals and uh, some extraordinary people. Uh, I tell the story, for example, of Condoleezza Rice and her decision to um, basically pursue international relations. I don't know if you know her story, but it's pretty amazing. She thought she would be a classically trained concert pianist and do that professionally. And as a 12- or 13-year-old, she went to the Van Cliburn competition in Fort Worth, Texas, which is the big classical music uh, pianist competition. She'd been working on a piece for over a year, and uh, there was a a younger um, musician who played the exact same piece uh, in the program just a couple of spots before her. And she said he did it flawlessly, perfectly. It was just amazing. And so she assumed that since she had been working on it for a year, he'd probably been working on it for two years. They talked backstage, and actually he revealed that he had just decided to pick up that piece just a couple of weeks before the competition. And she said, I was devastated because I thought 
you know, this is what I was going to be doing for my life's work. And I just realized I will never be as good as that guy, no matter how hard I practice, no matter what I do. And it was a hinge moment she experienced uh, in those early teenage years. She decided to graduate high school early, enrolled at the University of Denver. While there, she began to just explore different topics that she had never considered before. She thought she was going to major in music. Turned out she decided to take a class on the Soviet Union. It was a class taught by a guy named uh, Professor Corbell. And he just had a passion for Russian studies and the Soviet people. She became interested in that, ended up deciding that she'd go to grad school to study international relations at the University of Notre Dame, and continued on earning a PhD. And of course, the rest is history. She ends up taking a job at Stanford, is named the provost, the number two position at Stanford, the youngest person to ever hold that position, and later on was our national security advisor and secretary of state. But all of that happened because as a 13-year-old, Condoleezza Rice experienced a hinge moment where she had to be willing to explore other possibilities than she had thought her whole life would, would entail. And I think for all of us, we have to be willing to say, okay, God, I had a plan for my life, but at the end of the day, I really want to pursue your plan. I really want to do what you think is best. And so I pray that you would guide and direct me and teach me what you want me to do. And part of that is getting to a place where we're willing to both trust God and trust those people that God brings into our life to help guide and direct us in these important inflection points that we experience over the course of our life. Michael Lindsay is our guest. The book Hinge Moments. Uh, you do a whole chapter, Michael, just called The Hinge, uh, The Virtue of a Fixed Flexibility. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Hmm. Yeah. The thing, I just became fascinated with this idea that hinges of doors serve these purposes of allowing things to be open or closed and to change their direction as needed, but that they actually help affix the door. It's not just a piece of wood leaning against an open space, but it actually serves an important function of allowing the door to become operational and serve an important use in our lives. And as I interviewed all of these amazing people, men and women who were leading some of the largest enterprises in our, in our culture, I, I just was struck by how often these were folks who had developed a set of virtues or values that really governed their life, that really sort of set the direction. And it goes, you know, all the way back to biblical days where there's a set of values that really have to guide who we are as a people. And in many ways, it's those values that we set oftentimes early in life, but oftentimes we, we begin to think of them intentionally as adults that become sort of the guiding principles. And so in the book, I talk about the four classical virtues, you know, the idea of self-control and of um, wisdom and, and things like justice and how they would help shape the decisions we make in our life. Every one of us have a set of values that really guide and direct us. And some of them are born out of our unique personality and the unique gifting that God has given to us. And some of them also come from the worldview that we live our lives by. As Christians, we always want values like faith, hope, and love to be guiding, directing who we are and the key decisions that we make in life. And so I tell the stories of several different leaders who I met who embodied those values, but also sought to uh, live their lives according to them. And it's in many ways a, a reminder for all of us that when you're facing the big decisions of life, you really want to make those informed by a set of values to help guide and direct and orient the rest of our days. Now, uh, Michael, tell us about passages, growing through major life changes. 
Well, um, it, it's a little bit of an autobiography at that point. I talk about the story of how uh, my wife and I um, had our first daughter, Elizabeth, and my wife's pregnancy was a, a typical one. And Elizabeth was born, if she was born at 3.43 in the morning in the dead of winter in January. At the time, I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, pursuing a Ph.D., and we were so happy. It was our first child, and we were first-time parents and so very excited. Within just a, a few hours, though, of Elizabeth being in the world, the doctors told us something wasn't quite right. They couldn't put their finger on it, but they, they recognized that things were not quite as they should be. It ended up uh, being a journey that took us about three years before we finally discovered that Elizabeth had been born with a very rare genetic disorder, fewer than 500 cases in the world. And there's not a known cure, but it's uh, a, a series of challenges that Elizabeth has lived with ever since. Um, she has uh, something called neutropenia, which is dangerously low white blood cell count. So when she gets sick, it can be quite serious very quickly. She has problems with internal organs. And um, you may look at her and see her, and she looks typical. She can walk and run and uh, play like other kids. But if you interact with her for even just a few seconds, you'll realize that she's very special. She has profound cognitive disability. So while she's uh, 17, she doesn't have language. She doesn't speak words. She makes noises, and she can communicate with us through an iPad on some things that she wants. But she really has the development of about a two-year-old. And um, mm. Elizabeth has very poor vision. She's legally blind. And so um, we have to help her on a variety of things. And really, for the rest of my life, I'll be caring for my daughter in one way or another. And then when uh, my wife and I are gone, it will fall to her sisters who will be helping her. And passages uh, come through our life where we didn't anticipate it. The Lord brings something to us that we didn't even know that we could handle. And yet each of those become important uh, hinge moments in our life where we have the opportunity to say, okay, Lord, you really are in control, and so I want you to guide me, and I'm trusting that you're going to sort of equip me. And I give, you know, testimony to the fact that God has really equipped my wife and me um, to be able to uh, help support and care for Elizabeth. And in so many ways, she has enriched our life, made us a better family, certainly made me a better father, husband, and follower of Jesus because of those experiences. And each of us have challenges or tragedies that come into our life, but that the Lord uses for greater good. And part of what I'm encouraging people to do when they read Hinge Moments is to take stock of the things that have happened in our life, good and bad, and to learn from them so we can prepare, because we are always um, preparing for the next Hinge Moment that's coming. And so part of what I'm hoping the book does is provide some practical tools for everyone to be able to make sense of what the Lord has done and to get ready for what He's going to be doing next. Michael, I want you to uh, tell us about Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, and tell us about your students there, and tell me about what the mission of the school is. Taylor is an extraordinary uh, Christian university, um, and uh, it's the oldest non-denominational school in the country. We're celebrating our 175th anniversary this year. It's an amazing school, uh, extraordinary students. It has... Uh, about 2,000 students drawn from across the country and around the world. It's an um, yeah, amazing institution, number one school in the Midwest, according to 
U.S. News. We always have great students from Florida. We've had a long tradition of having a lot of students from Florida at Taylor, mm. and they come because they love the campus culture. Um, and in fact, we uh, we have this great tradition that happens every uh, December. It's a basketball game that we hold um, called Silent Night. The first 10 points that we score, the crowd is silent. And on the 10th point, we erupt. And it's just amazing excitement and energy. And at the end of the game, we sing uh, Silent Night. And it's a celebration of the Christmas season. It's covered on ESPN every year. It's an amazing experience. And it's representative of the kind of robust campus culture we have at Taylor. What I like to say is that oftentimes you have to go to a much bigger school like uh, Notre Dame or Texas A&M or University of Florida to experience these kinds of great traditions and campus culture. But at Taylor, somehow figured out how to build that kind of campus culture in a much more uh, intimate environment where students know each other by name. Only about 2,000 students. Our faculty know students really well. We have this amazing campus culture, which is uh, so exciting. There's always fun things that are happening. I love the fact that we have chapel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's not required, but chapel is packed. We'll have 1,500 students in chapel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's just part of the robust campus culture we have. Taylor is one of those very top Christian universities in the country that for 175 years has been preparing um, young people to go out to different locations. And if uh, any of your listeners are interested in coming to check out Taylor, we'd love to have them. Every year we have amazing students from Florida who help make us a much better place, and we'd love to have more. Who was Taylor, Michael? Bishop William Taylor was a Methodist bishop in Indiana, and uh, he was a legendary figure because he helped preach the gospel to this part of the country, and people were really grateful for his legacy and influence. And so they named um, what originally started as a Bible college, particularly serving women in Fort Wayne, took his name and became Taylor University uh, as we grew and expanded in the late 19th century. Dr. Michael Lindsay, our guest, the author of Hinge Moments. Michael, what do you want readers to take from your book? My hope is that uh, they'll read it, pass it along to anyone who is experiencing a change or transition or considering one in their life, whether it be thinking about going off to school or maybe starting a new job, beginning a new career, or exploring change in their family. And my hope is that the book will be a great resource. It's a great Christmas gift. You can pick it up anywhere you buy books. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local Christian bookstore, but also it's a great resource for folks who are trying to help come alongside people who face those transitions. So pastors, teachers, ministers, youth workers, all those folks would really benefit because it's filled with great, amazing stories, inspiring examples, but also very practical advice. Well, Michael, I must tell you, uh, when you begin to rattle off some of those names you got through to, uh, uh, my respect for you went way up because that's not easy uh, in their busy lives to get through to them and, and have any time at all. I mean, I'm very, very impressed uh, with the, the Well, it was depth. a lot of fun. I got a chance to meet some amazing people. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Well, folks, I want to tell you, uh, when you go up uh, to order uh, Michael Lindsay's book, Uh, Hinge Moments. Uh, Check out my latest book. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we go back to the Revolutionary War period and we pinpoint 25 leaders in that period. Um, Men, uh, some women, uh, some very famous, some not so much. 
uh, but they all made contributions in us even having a country. And mm-hmm. and uh, the difference, uh, you know, we had no business winning that war. Uh, Great Britain had better everything, uh, everything except uh, we had better leadership. And, and, and we look at those leaders, and I think you'll get some, some value from that book as well as uh, Hinge Moments. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And thanks to the two Michaels who were our guests, Michael Foster in the first segment, talking about it's good to be a man, a handbook for godly masculinity. And then uh, Dr. Michael Lindsay, uh, he joined us from Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, and we talked about his book, Hinge Moments, Making the Most of Life's Transitions. Folks, I hope uh, you have a wonderful time getting ready for uh, Christmas. It's it's closed. It's coming up. Uh, in fact, it's coming up in a week. Hard to believe, isn't it? So uh, have a wonderful time getting ready for Christmas. Let me wish you a very Merry Christmas in advance. And a reminder that we'll be back next weekend for more right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And speaking of books, uh, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we go back to the Revolutionary War period, and we study 25 different leaders, men and women, some famous, some not so famous, but they all played a key role in the the Revolutionary War, uh, that dramatic period when this country came into being. I think you'll enjoy it. Revolutionary Leadership. Uh, we are back next weekend for more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. Have a terrific week ahead. And stay tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.